Recording from the Sunshine City, St. Petersburg, Florida, overlooking beautiful Tampa Bay, this is the Sonography Lounge, sponsored by Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute. This podcast is dedicated to medical professionals and patients around the world interested in diagnostic and interventional ultrasound. Our podcast will discuss everything ultrasound, from news, trends, career paths, new technology, and industry updates. Hosted by Lori Green and Trisha Rio of Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute, they bring over four decades of experience in the ultrasound profession and are here to guide you through this journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome and thank you for joining us at the Sonography Lounge where we discuss all things ultrasound. I'm Lori Green and I'm here today with my co-host Trisha Rio. Hey everyone. So this week we're hosting our Intro and Advanced Interventional and Regen Medicine MSK course at our facility in sunny St. Pete, Florida. MSK Ultrasound is an excellent diagnostic and interventional tool for sonographers, physicians, and other healthcare providers working in sports med, ortho, rheumatology, family medicine, physical therapy, and more. The greatest benefit of ultrasound over other imaging modalities is the ability to evaluate the patient with dynamic movement, allowing the clinician to, ter- to determine how motion affects the area of concern. That's right, Tricia. And so today we are sitting down for a happy hour chat with two of our expert faculty, Dr. John Jacobson, who is an MSK radiologist for Lenox Hill Radiology in New York, New York, and Dr. David Wang founding partner and director of education and training of regenerative orthopedics and sports medicine in the metro D.C. area. So welcome and cheers, everyone. Thank you. Cheers. Great to be here. Cheers. (laughs) David? All right. So why don't you guys get us started in our discussion here today? Hi, David. How are you doing? I am great. Nice to see you. It's always great seeing you. Likewise. You've got some of the best jokes and sense of humor. I may be the only person who thinks that. but <laughs> Yes, uh, I think you are. But, anyways, <laughs> but it's nice to see you. It's always great to, to share the podium with you. And uh, why don't we get started? So I had a question that I thought I would ask you to initiate some discussion. And this has to do with ultrasound. Surprise. You don't say. <laughs> Musculoskeletal ultrasound. So I know that in your practice, you have a very special practice where you have some sometimes really difficult and challenging cases. I recognize that. So I was wondering, is there an example of a case where musculoskeletal ultrasound just really saved the day, cleared up everything, and made a tremendous difference in the care of your patient? Yeah, so, you know, it's fascinating in the years, you know, so I've been doing MSK ultrasound for probably about 15 years now. And a lot of times it's kind of the, the, the standard, you know, okay, yeah, you've got somebody who comes in, who have got, you know, rotator cuff injury, and okay, then you have protocols that you can rely on and make a confident diagnosis, render treatment, and everybody's happy. And then there's all these other cases where it's like, you know, you're kind of scratching your head, and especially the ones that revolve around spine or potential spine, you know, radicular type pain patterns, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The anatomy can be quite complex when it's not as straightforward, you know, say, you know, a disc protrusion that's mashing on a, a nerve root, right? And you start looking at pain referral patterns, all this weird stuff. And uh, sometimes MRI is the way to go, but other times the ultrasound makes a huge difference, right? So I had this one case, let's see, he was a like early 60s male with, it was left buttock and leg pain with numbness in his leg, but it wasn't actual numbness where he lost sensation, right? It was sort of like a numb-like you know, feeling, I guess, like almost like paresthesias. And so he had MRI of the low back, 
of the spine. And sure enough, it showed like a little bit of a broad-based protrusion at L5-S1, maybe contacting the nerve root, but his neuro exam is completely normal. And the, the thing that kind of gave me a bit of a clue is that he said, you know, when he sits and he kind of shifts his weight a certain way, it, it would make that numbness and that pain worse. And then so then, you know, good physical exam is always the base of, uh, of these things, right? So, okay, start doing my physical exam. And again, neuro exam is normal. And then as I'm doing a palpatory exam in his low back, SI and buttock region, he had this one area in his left upper gluteal that was kind of tender. And when I pushed on, he's like, you know, I, that feels like it's kind of reproducing the stuff going down my leg. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So diagnostic ultrasound, right? I'm scanning through there and I'm doing my usual hip scan, not seeing a whole lot of stuff, you know, scanning like his distal glute med and, and min. And it's like, oh, he's got a little tendinosis there, but that tender spot was more proximal. So I scan proximally and sure enough, he has this big honking calcification intramuscular in his proximal glute max. And it was, I think, something like three by 1.8 by like 1.2 centimeters or something like that. So fairly large. He has no recollection of any trauma in the area or how it got there. But I was like, okay, well, when I push on this right over sonopalpation-wise, and that's a great tool in terms of ultrasound, is that active sonopalpation where you can really scan the area. You, you find an area of, say, you know, pathology. You push on it, and if it reproduces those symptoms, you know, it seems to be quite a sensitive, you know, exam finding. So it reproduced those symptoms. So we went ahead and did a diagnostic injection where I kind of put in some anesthetic and sort of hydrodissected around the calcification. I probably put in about about four or five cc's of like a low concentration anesthetic mixed with some, you know, some normal saline. And his leg symptoms, the pain, the numbness, the paresthesia is all completely 100% gone, right? And I'm like, well, this is kind of interesting because you start wondering, okay, is this guy going to need an epidural? Is he going to need a discectomy? Like, what's this guy going to need from a, you know, from a neuro standpoint? But it wasn't a classic radiculopathy at all. It was like this gluteal calcification that I would not have found if it wasn't for using the ultrasound, which also allowed me to just locally go in there and be very, very accurate about treating that region and you know did a couple of hydrodissections and the guy's like almost symptom free so wow. kind of wacky right yeah yeah well that's impressive the symptoms you described in your patient remind me of the comments i hear after i give a lecture <laughs> numbness pain in the butt things like that uh, <laughs> but you bring up a great point and that is first of all uh, ultrasound is an incredible tool in the hands of a clinician such as yourself you can combine that with your skills and lead you to the proper diagnosis from the radiologist's perspective, I always teach, although we're protocol-driven in our scanning, we have to still listen to the patient. Mm. I routinely ask the patient, can you point to where it hurts the most? Yes. And it's a number of times where that has taken me to a diagnosis I didn't suspect. So I think you brought a great point with that, mm. uh, with mm -hmm. that example. Yeah. So that makes me think of a follow-up question. Okay. The flip side. Uh-huh. Because not everything is perfect. Oh, far uh, from it. So is there a case that comes to mind where perhaps ultrasound led you down the wrong path where you said, oh, what was I thinking? Right, And right. you can be somewhat honest. <laughs> so I was suspecting you might ask this type of question. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so I guess, so there's this one particular case where the ultrasound was almost like too sensitive. It was almost like too good in a way. So let's see, this patient, she was late 30s and she had knee pain. I think it was her left knee. Yeah, left knee pain and kind of like lateral patellar pain. And um, so physical exam was not that revealing. And then we had plain films. And then it turns out that she had this little foreign object 
like this little linear, almost look metallic, that was in almost like that lateral retinacular aspect, just inferior to the inferior pole of the patella and lateral. And she's like, yeah, that's like right where my pain is. I'm like, what is this thing doing there? And she's like, I have no idea. And she's thinking, she's like, oh, you know what? So the pain started like seven years ago. And in two years before that, I was running up some steps and I was wearing these capris and I tripped on the step and I landed kind of on my knee. And I remember that I had these little like pin things, like those little, I don't know, like a garment pins or whatever in the lower part of the, of the capris. And when I tripped, <laughs> this is kind of gross, but it shoved that pin under the skin and then like broke off. And I had this like metal thing in my knee and I completely forgot about this. Right. So I'm like, Oh my God, that's crazy. So I take the ultrasound. Oh, and then uh, that's right. After that, she went to ortho after we discovered this, 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 you know, this foreign body and orthopedic surgery was like, you know, we could try to take it out surgically, but I mean, it's going to be tough. Cause you know, there's this tiny little thing where I have to cut through all this tissue. It's going to be kind of a mess. I'm like, you know, if you can live with the pain, maybe just like live with it. Right. So I was like, Oh, ha, ha, ultrasound might come to save the day. Right. <laughs> so I I scanned the area and sure enough, I saw this little linear, it was like seven by one millimeters. This this little foreign, it looked like a needle, except it was broken off in the middle of her like, of her soft tissue. So I thought, you know what, let's try to extract it. I've never done this before, but why don't we try? Okay, so I got like, you know, a sterile set of hemostats and all this kind of stuff, right? So sure enough, make a little incision and I go in there digging with these hemostats. It took me like 45 minutes to get this dang thing out. And her husband is in the room and finally, you know, I finally grab onto it under ultrasound guidance. I'm guiding the hemostats and I extract the thing and it's like, da -da -da -dung, and I'm holding this, this metal and it was disgusting. The thing was like all kind of slightly corroded and stuff like that. I guess her oh, tissues, wow. it's sort of, you know, because I've been in there for like years, right? Yeah. And I pull it out and we're all celebrating. It's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing that you took that thing out, all this kind of stuff, right? So we scheduled a follow-up for, I think it was like three weeks later. And she's like, yeah, you know, doc, my pain hasn't changed at all. It's like exactly the same as it was before. So I'm like, oh God, right? So I re-examine her knee. And this time around, I did a patellar grind test, which is like a standard physical exam test that I always do, but apparently I didn't do it on my initial evaluation with her. Turns out she just had like a standard patellofemoral syndrome and she was having pain along the lateral, you know, facet of her knee. So we, we did a couple of actually a couple of prolotherapy treatments intraarticularly to get that, that subpatellar region, two treatments, and then she's fine. You know, and this is over the course of like probably three months and I see her in follow-up at four months and she's like, yeah, the pain's like 90% gone, man. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> apparently this whole thing, this foreign body and extracting it an ultrasound, it was awesome, it was great, but it was just the wrong diagnosis. So wow. you gotta rely on your clinical exam, you know, follow the history, follow the physical exam, right? Don't let things lead you astray when it's like the literally the bright, shiny object into this metal thing that, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an impressive story. I'm impressed with your attention to detail with these scenarios. What color were the capris? <laughs> I think she said they were white. Or no, because her husband actually asked that question. That's kind of a funny thing that I remember that. So well, I never saw them. That but. gets kind of muddy waters there asking that question. It's, anyways, <laughs> but what a great story. And um, I'm glad it worked out okay in the end. And yeah, so that's awesome. Very so cool. that was, there was that's the questions I had for you to, yeah. to discuss. So, you know, John, as I'm sitting here thinking about how wonderful the, te the technology is for ultrasound, right? I mean, there are things that we can do that even, you know, a couple, you know, a dozen years ago, 
you know, we, we didn't have the capability. I've been doing this for 15 years, but you know, one of the great things is I remember very clearly when you came to help train us when we were in the early stages, right? This is over in Boston, you know, up at Harvard's PM&R program. And you came in to help train myself and, you know, Dr. Joanne Borgstein and all. And at that time, I remember you being very excited about new technologies and, you know, in general with radiology. And now fast forward these numbers of years, you know, from what I'm seeing, the tech and ultrasound has made leaps and bounds. But I would love to hear from someone who's, you've been doing this longer than practically anybody on the planet here. <laughs> what have you seen in terms of, you know, recent innovations with technology and how that's shaping the future? Yeah, so it's a good question. There are a number of areas where, that are being developed, which I'm excited about. And let's say three come to mind. Yeah. So I'll just make a few comments about the three where I feel that there could be some advancement that can make a difference in patient care. The first one is microvascular imaging. So we know that we use color Doppler and there are many benefits to show blood flow, neovascularity with tendinosis, true inflammation with infection, and importantly with inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis. And we know that power Doppler is more sensitive than color, mm -hmm. conventional color, but microvascular imaging is even more sensitive. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen from it so far, I'm seeing blood flow in normal structures that I've never seen before. So we now need to then understand what is normal and but where I think this will be important is when I look at a patient let's say with rheumatoid arthritis and they're treated effectively and the blood flow on color and power Doppler disappears but maybe they're still symptomatic is that really indicative of uh, no inflammation mm. you know and I think the microvascular imaging may open our eyes to say well maybe there's still something going on there so it's going to just raise the bar and letting us have more information on the degree of inflammation and, and hyperemia. So I think that whole area is going to be very interesting. So that's one of the three areas. The other area that you, I'm sure you know about is elastography, mm -hmm. and the latest is shear wave. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot has been done looking at tendinosis and tendon problems, but I feel that the subtleties of shear wave, what we're seeing, are only marginally better than the grayscale, which right now is really incredible. And from a clinical perspective, you're gonna treat, the subtleties may be so small that you would still treat the patient the same mm. and not change management. But the area of shear wave where I'm really interested in has to do with peripheral nerves. Because ah. right now, like talking to Jeff Strakowski and others, we know that ultrasound shows the anatomical information and we know the electrodiagnostic tells us the physiology. Mm. I want to know is there changes in the the compressibility, the stiffness of these nerves, especially in diabetics. That's an area uh, yeah. that is we don't understand completely. So I'm hoping that maybe shear wave and peripheral nerve may take us mm. to the next level. Mm -hmm. So that's two of the three. That's very cool. Okay. You got some nerve talking about this, John. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the last the last one has to do with portable ultrasound only because every year I'm always impressed how the machines are getting smaller and more powerful the higher frequency fortunately they're being they're wireless mm -hmm. and it's allowing us to work remotely as you know I work with outreach in Uganda yeah. and I'm trying to get outreach established in northern Alaska to areas that have low or no access. Mm -hmm. So I think as we progress with this portable ultrasound, I'm excited what this is going to do in the world mm -hmm. in, in healthcare. So those are the three areas that I'm, I'm 
really excited about. Yeah, that that is pretty amazing stuff for sure. I you know I remember back in the day the first ultrasound machine we had was one of those old we we called it like the Green Beast. I can't even remember what what you know brand it was, but it was this big huge box and the screen was like yay big <laughs> and it was like grainy as anything. It, it was really incredible in terms of you know, how far things have come. I mean nowadays like those little portable handheld systems are you know as good as some of the mid level machines that we had you know maybe ten years ago already. Right. You know it, it is really quite astounding. I I love hearing about the work that you're doing in Uganda. And, uh, you know, one of the things that has been really one of my favorite things that I do in life are these medical service trips to Honduras and, and Mexico and Guadalajara. I think I've been on 24, 25 missions now, something like that. And I'm going back actually in, in March for back to Honduras. We haven't been there in three years because of the pandemic. And one of the things that's interesting, so it's been three years since we've been there. The increasing popularity of these handheld systems, right? Now we're sitting here thinking, okay, we haven't had the ability to bring any significant technology down there. And now with these portable ultrons, we have, you know, it's like they said in the $6 million man, right? It's like, we have the technology, right? <laughs> and so I would love to explore what some of these options might be to bring that technology down there because we are doing a lot of, you know, a musculoskeletal you know, diagnosis and treatment, a lot of injection therapies, and to be able to have the increased, you know, just safety and accuracy of having the ultrasound on board would be a huge game changer. I mean, just, you know, really a game changer there. So I'd love to hear, you know, as things continue to develop, I would love to hear from you, John, like what you feel would be good good resources and good points of access, you know, for this. So. so what you're doing with your outreach is amazing. Can you tell me what is the most common treatment or what 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 are you treating mm -hmm. most commonly with yeah. your outreach? It's, so there's a couple things. Right, yeah. So we tried to keep some data on this in terms of evaluating the body regions that were the chief complaints were for our patients. If I remember correctly, a little bit over 40% of all comers, and we'll treat as many as like about 2,000 patients over the course of the two weeks of, of our time in Honduras. Wow. It's been a little bit a little bit less recently, probably like somewhere in the 1400 range, and about 40, 42% are knees, a lot of knee osteoarthritis. That's like the main, you know, thing. About 25, 22 to 25%, it was a low back pain. And then we had a fair number of neck pain uh, patients and interestingly, elbow pain. One of the reasons for the elbow pain is that a lot of the folks down there that are manual laborers, they're doing a lot of machete work to clear brush. So a lot of just the, the lateral and medial epicondyloses because of all of the work that they're using from like machetes and carrying brush and all that kind of stuff. And then the rest of it in terms of like ankle and wrist and hand is a little bit less common, you know, round out the rest of it. So, but a lot of knee OA and, and low back pain. That's very interesting. From my experience in Uganda, mm. I'm developing a shoulder treatment and ultrasound program there. But what we found is that actually a large number of women are getting this. It's mainly agriculture and farming. But in Uganda, the women, women do much of that labor. Mm. And we didn't understand until we were there what the problems were and what was the cause but it's agriculture, but there's a large number of women which we didn't understand until we were boots on the ground. So yeah, yeah. yeah. fascinating. Wow. And I, you know, one of the things that is kind of challenging to think about is the fact that there's always gonna be the need for 
for help with these folks that are in these underserved areas around the world. And it just really makes you kind of think like, wow, you know, we could do this like 24 seven and it still would never be enough, you know? But as the technology becomes more easily available, again, it's kind of like this game changer, you know? So it's very, very exciting in terms of looking at the future of ultrasound. And frankly, it really begs the, the question of how well can we train folks to be able to help around the world, you know, and that's the thing is that, you know, on these service trips, we train a lot of the docs that are local in terms of in Honduras. We have a, a connection with the anesthesiology department at one of the local hospitals. And so they always send, you know, three to five residents along with a couple of attendings to to work with us so we can teach them these these techniques so they can help locally. But I mean, if you can imagine that on like a global scale, I mean, you know, we got really got to blow this up and mm-hmm. you know, take care of people, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, you mentioned osteoarthritis of the knee is one of the most common ailments. So how are you treating those patients? What are you doing for them? Boy, that that is, you know, it's funny how osteoarthritis seems like such a sort of simple concept, but when you start peeling back the layers, it gets pretty complicated. A lot of times we talk about, you kind of have these two camps, if you will, or these two buckets. In one bucket, you have the anatomic and structural, right? So, okay, what's going on with the cartilage? What's going with the, on with the subchondral bone? That's like kind of a new up and coming thing in terms of what's the health of that subchondral bone and how can we improve upon that? What are the supporting structures ligamentously? What are the biomechanics? You know, leg length discrepancies, all of those, you know, muscle balance and so on. Then you have the what we refer to as like the physiologic or functional side. So those are all the things regarding pro-inflammatory physiology, right? So, you know, what are dietary influences, environmental influences, those sorts of things. Genetics play a role, obviously. And so trying to be holistic and integrative in terms of the approach is ideal, but it can be challenging because how many millions, if not billions of people have osteoarthritis, if not in these, you know, somewhere else? Well, how many of them have the option to modify their diet substantially to reduce, you know, those inflammatory mediators? It, it can be pretty challenging. From a treatment standpoint, what we know now, or actually have probably known for a while, is interestingly, some of the conventional treatments, you kind of get short-term gain, but potentially long-term loss. I just did a lit search for looking at the effect of chronic NSAID use in osteoarthritis, and most of the papers seem to suggest that you know when you're taking chronic NSAIDs for a while, it can actually accelerate the progression of osteoarthritis, okay. looking at the use of corticosteroids and the fact that they also seem over time with multiple applications to accelerate arthritis. So, you know, what the heck are we doing here, you know? And this is where some of the, and it goes by different names with these restorative or regenerative procedures and treatments, things like, you know, platelet-rich plasma, things like these, you know, cellular in terms of the micro-fragmented adipose and bone marrow aspirate concentrate that can concentrate some of those growth factors and some of the stem cells and things like that can have some restorative properties. The research is is growing at a very rapid rate, looking at the positive results of these types of technologies. And, um, you know, we try to stay evidence-based but cutting edge with a lot of these things. And there's some pretty solid research to show mm-hmm. that it can, you know, put off things like knee replacements for as much as like a good 10 years in terms of Dr. Hernigo's data, things like that. So that does seem to be the up and coming piece. I want to talk about you for a second. <laughs> so you don't ask me more difficult questions. <laughs> no more questions. So, no, I wanted to follow up with, you're doing some great outreach and you talk about knee osteoarthritis. Yeah. Since we were flown here to talk about this and to talk about ultrasound, I wanted to come back to ultrasound. How does ultrasound fit into how you're dealing with knee osteoarthritis? Yes, right. So from our perspective, traditionally in in, the way that people will focus on 
not just knee osteoarthritis, but kind of osteoarthritis in general, is there's such a heavy focus on the articular portion of it, right? So, you know, what is the bony alignment? What, you know, how is that the thickness of that cartilage? You know, on plain films, right? That's kind of the most of what you can what you can evaluate. On other types of imaging with MRI, the, the very helpful thing with MRI these days is that it is able to evaluate the health of the subchondral bone, looking at, you know, cystic changes, bone marrow edema, those sorts of things. In addition to just looking at the thickness and the health of the cartilage, where there are particular fissures and things of that nature. But I think clinically where sometimes things get overlooked are the soft tissue components of stabilizing that joint. And this is where I think the, um, the, the mechanics of how is it that osteoarthritis actually develops when you're looking at that anatomical structural piece separate from the functional piece, right? Where, okay, what is the role, if any, of micro-instability due to ligamentous laxity? You know, so the, mm, I guess the cascade that occurs is that the cartilage layer starts to degradate and thin out genetic reasons, chronic inflammation, things like that. What is the role of the subchondral bone in being able to provide optimal nutrition to that cartilage? If the subchondral bone health starts to deteriorate, does that nutrition take a hit? With hits in the nutrition, the cartilage will degenerate more quickly, theoretically. When that happens, your joint space narrows. When that joint spacing narrows, the supporting ligaments buckle, right? So you've got your, your collateral ligaments, your, your, your capsular ligaments, and so on. When those buckle, do they allow more sort of shearing of that joint? You get that micro-instability. And then that then causes additional degeneration to that cartilage as the surfaces rub against one another. And it becomes like this positive feedback loop, right? And so in terms of trying to reverse that, using ultrasound as one of the you know important tools to evaluate those soft tissue structures, looking at your MCL and LCL, looking at your medial and lateral retinacula, and being able to, if you have the means, to restore the integrity of those soft tissues, to hopefully restore some of that or reverse perhaps a little bit of that micro instability, we find that adding that to the mix in addition to addressing the articular structures and nowadays more the subchondral bone, that seems to get the best outcomes. You know, fewer treatments, longer lasting relief, those kinds of things. And the ultrasound is key to identifying where those soft tissue lesions are. Wow, that's impressive. Obviously, you are an expert in this field of regenerative medicine, and it's awesome what you're doing with your outreach. So, David, it's been great to see you. I'm afraid we're out of time. But again, I want to thanks, thank you for Gulf Coast and then seeing you and talking about these items. But before we leave, I know, David, we've hung out before, and I know you personally, but the audience may not know you as personal as I do. So I want to ask you three questions to, oh to, to end this. Three. And uh, the seat's starting to get a little hot here. I, know. I don't know. You know like. uh, the, the first one it has to do with microvascular imaging. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, so here are the three questions. Number one, Apple or Android? Ooh, for me, you got to say Android. So sorry. Okay. Question number two of three, Cava or Prosecco? For me, I got to go with the Prosecco. Okay. Final question. Oysters, East Coast or West Coast? <laughs> to quote one, a, a movie quote about being whether it's East Coast or Far East Coast, I would say East Coast. Mm -hmm. But really, okay. I don't understand the differences between East and West Coast oysters very well. 
personally. I grew up on the East Coast, so what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> so I got David on that last question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. It's great seeing you again. Absolutely, John. Great All to right. see you as well. Thank you so much. And thank you, Gulf Coast. Yeah. Thank you guys thank you. so much for joining us and for being here this week for our MSK course. We always love having you here. You guys are amazing and have such a wealth of knowledge to share with our participants. So we're happy to have you here. It's been a great and fun discussion with with two of our favorite faculty members, but all good things must come to an end. Mm -hmm. So we thank you, John and David. John Excellent. and David for sitting down with us today. Yeah, and thank you to all of our loyal li loyal listeners. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. That way you don't miss a single episode. And happy scanning. Happy scanning, everybody. Bye. And cheers. Cheers. Yay. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs>